Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Even the Score podcast, a podcast about soundtracks and scores from movies, TV shows, and video games. I am, of course, Don, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony and Jason. Hello to you both. Howdy. Hey, how's it going? So we are here once again to dive into a subject matter that we are all three of us interested in, in regards to soundtracks and scores. And uh, what we decided to do this go around is uh, we thought we would break down one specific genre of either a movie or TV show or a video game that uh, that kind of really appealed to us. And the genre that we've selected uh, for this episode is uh, black exploitation films of the 70s, 80s, 90s, anything that kind of revolves around the black exploitation movie movement from the 1970s and uh, everything that kind of drifted in from from that point. Uh, so we thought we'd really dive into this topic. We have all selected a few movies from the era that really interested us, and we're going to be talking about that in our second segment when we start to really dive into the things that really appealed to us, and we're going to break it down, not only the movies, uh, but also those soundtracks and scores from each of those uh, pieces of pop culture. But I thought in our first segment here, right up front, uh, we would go through the actual definition of exploitation and what the genre is all about. And then I thought what we would do is we would take a look at the era and uh, just understand where we're coming from historically and where exploitation really fits in. Uh, then we're going to take a look a, a little bit at uh, modern implications. We're going to talk about uh, where exploitation really influences filmmakers today, where it's impacting other uh, sources of pop culture, and just uh, really get into to what this genre is all about. Now, obviously, we are just three individuals having fun with this podcast, having fun with the topic at hand. So we are no experts by all means. We are just basing it on whatever research we have done and just, again, our own opinion. So bear with us here as we go into this subject matter. We just really wanted to to highlight just, again, one of those things that we really enjoyed and we thought would uh, would make an interesting subject matter for, for today's episode. So let's start out by taking a look at the genre itself and going through a little bit about the history of black exploitation. So we're looking at a movie genre that is pretty short-lived in its heyday. Uh, a lot of the research I was doing looked at a a five to ten year span uh, that began in 1971, where you saw this huge influx of uh, black exploitation movies uh, be uh, released for uh, the urban audience, because what movie theaters uh, were seeing was that more white uh, citizens of urban centers were starting to move into the suburbs, and there was this significant drop in uh, viewership in cinemas. So there was this need to start appealing to those st- who are still residing in cities, which were primarily people of color, uh, black citizens, anyone from uh, Latin descent. Uh, there was a lot of need to uh, address the the markets, the, the demographics that were still residing in, in urban centers, because the way that movies, uh, the way that cinemas were set up back then is not like it is today. We don't have huge movie theaters that are kind of on those outskirts of town and where you can go and you can see 10, 12, 14 movies. There's massive screens there and everybody can kind of go to one central point. Movie theaters were set up primarily in urban environments where the people basically lived. That was their audience members. Those are the people they were really drawing in. So as the need was there to start appealing to the individuals who would utilize those uh, those cinemas. So the, the idea was to start funding all of these movies that had predominantly black casts, which is a, a huge advancement from where uh, black actors and actresses typically uh, ran in the in the movie scene. They were usually sidekicks or or. Secondary characters or even tertiary characters. Now we're seeing black actors take the main stage 
stage, as well as those individuals behind the scenes. So there was this huge success with the release of movies such as Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and Shaft in 1971 that just demonstrated the need to really support the audiences uh, in urban environments and release movies that really hit home with them and, and they were able to see themselves up on the screen. Obviously, this wasn't a huge hit with everybody. There was considerable backlash from groups like the uh, NAACP where they felt that black exploitation movies and the characters that they were depicting were definitely holding on to more of the the white stereotypes of black citizens in the United States as opposed to black empowerment of those individuals. But the audience members seemed to disagree because uh, starting in 1972, there was a huge upswing in production of black exploitation movies and there was significant responses from audience members. Uh, they were going in droves to see movies such as Superfly, Trouble Man, Hammer, and they continued on into the the late 70s with seeing things like coffee and uh, we definitely did see the genre start to really decrease beyond 1976 to the point where in the early 1980s it was basically non-existent anymore there wasn't this specific focus on these movies um, drawing in crowds but I think at that point the the idea had already been captured by directors and by uh, movie producers that there was this need to continue the idea of, of uh, having uh, black actors and actresses, uh, black crew behind the scenes um, be a significant part of movies. And uh, individuals, audience members of the era were also obviously impacted by that because we see a lot of those individuals go on to make their own movies, people like uh, Quentin Tarantino, and they go on to reference the genre quite heavily with movies like uh, Jackie Brown, obviously bringing in Pam Greer specifically to play uh, the the lead uh, role there, and that's a, a huge throwback to the the black exploitation era, and we're we're seeing the impacts of that to this very day. So that's a very brief synopsis about the genre that we're specifically looking at today. But again, it has some pretty broad reach into today's cinema and today's pop culture, and I think we we all benefit hugely from it. There's more BIPOC representation. There's more understanding of just who needs to be up there and what the audiences want to see. So I think we've uh, we've really seen great successes with the genre, but I want to put it to obviously my co-hosts here, Anthony and Jason, to talk about their feelings about the black exploitation genre and uh, provide a little bit of insight uh, from the research that they've done. So I'll put it to you both. Uh, what do you think about the genre? What do you think about the movies produced here? Do you have any thoughts that you wanted to provide out to our audience? So this is a, a topic where, I, you know, I did a little nominal amount of research ahead of, uh, you know, this conversation. But then I actually, you know, I have a good friend who is old enough to be, uh, you know, one of my parents and was coming of age during this time. And, you know, I kind of want to get his perspective, too, because I, I guess what kind of gets lost in this is that, to your point, the movie theaters need and, you know, I, I'll, I'll maybe tip my hand a little bit and just say that. Their their need to make money, right? Because uh, here we are, just after the the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Before then, at least in this country, you know, speaking as the only American on the, the podcast, it, things were really segregated, right? Like, I mean, integration was not normal, and you know, to the extent that black characters were in films, to Don's point earlier. They were often not very important characters in the film, uh, with some notable exceptions, but those are extremely rare and uncommon in the film. And it was almost unheard of to have like a completely black cast for any reason whatsoever. So, you know, to your point, I, I think a lot of black folk in America at that time 
we're just really, really happy to see, regardless of how they were depicted, uh, just a lot of them on the silver screen. I mean, that was unheard of before that time. And for maybe perhaps the, the more ivory tower types that were sort of looking at the depictions of black folks at that time and sort of like ringing the alarm, a lot of people, this wasn't the age of social media, right? Like those voices didn't spread very far. And, you know, you have to understand that there were lots of uh, uh, black folks around the country who weren't even necessarily in big city centers, right? Like, I mean, the having a theater relatively close by was not every person of color's experience. So it kind of brings it back that this was just like, yeah, forget what those people over there are saying. Like, this is cool. I think was probably the attitude of most people at the time. So these films, they they reek of cool, even if they're, you know, I think I've seen some online sources call it campy or a, a few other adjectives that just sort of say like, yeah, well, this is like cheesy or it's it's really cliche, but it's an all black cast. And it's like, you know, in some cases, these folks are like superheroes of like, you know, the hood type. It, it's just cool. So all that to say that I think it's an important change. I mean, even if it was driven for sort of capitalistic reasons, like it's important that this happened, you know, because even after the black exploitation period ended, black films really kind of didn't have like they kind of went in hiding for a while because like I'm thinking about the stuff that I remember as a kid in the 80s. And if your name wasn't Diana Ross or Billy D. Williams, you probably weren't getting on the screen. It really kind of wasn't until the 90s and the, the, well, the very late 80s and 90s with like the advent of folks like John Singleton and like, you know, the boys in the hood and some of like, you know, Spike Lee's and those films that they did that you really started to see money, maybe not huge money, but money being thrown behind uh, some of these like exploration of basically the non-white experience. It's an interesting time period. And I'm happy that we're like diving into it today. I am really excited for us to talk about this because I really do think that there is so much to say about what happened around black exploitation film and what happened as Jason you referred to as like this hiding. There really was like a kind of whitewashing of major Hollywood uh, movies that happened throughout the 80s that kind of lifted around the 90s. And now it's interesting to look back on that era um, and look at black black exploitation films, not only as a source of empowerment, but as a source of entertainment. And I think that's really what a lot of them get at. And uh, I found, as I was doing a little bit of research, especially going back and revisiting one of my favorites, Coffee, there are a lot of, like, superhero tropes that are in that movie. And I'm excited to kind of pull that apart because things like Black Panther were such a huge cultural movement. And it was such a huge, important thing. And the soundtrack of that movie did play a huge part of it. Such a brilliant soundtrack, but I know that's uh, not what we're on today. No. And oh, we're going to get there. But for seriously, sure. we could... I think even as a uh, follow-up episode to this, we could really pull apart the Black Panther soundtrack and look at what Kendrick Lamar did with the compilation, and then same thing, what Ludwig Goranson did with that score. And I think it's so interesting to look at black exploitation films, look at the music of those black exploitation films, and look at how much entertainment and how much impact those have on today's not only movie, uh, but I think musical grounds. And again, some of the research I did about black exploitation films and 
Don, hearing you talk a little bit about, you know, that history of the movement out into the suburbs and how cinema was primarily an urban experience. I didn't really know that, but I did know that in the 70s, independent cinema became huge because the price of cameras was so drastically reduced by mass manufacturing all of a sudden people who previously couldn't have access to cameras were ha- having access to cameras so when i think of the 70s i do think of black exploitation but i also think of horror because horror to me was a really gave its jump start in the 70s with a lot of independent cinema and i think that again has an interesting impact on what's going on today with the rise of like youtube and online content that doesn't necessarily have an outlet we don't have movie places to go and watch things with, you know, characters that we might see in our lives. So this is a really, again, I think, as we said before, a huge genre, but I think it lends itself to so many different offshoots that I'm really excited to explore. You know, the other thing that I think is kind of important before we sort of launch into the, the soundtracks and scores we pick, you know, it's not sort of like a binary sort of like either it's a soundtrack or it's a score. One of the first films I wanted to talk about is really a blend, right? Like there's there's some tracks that are very clearly built for public consumption. There are others that are meant to disappear. Disappear in a nice and pleasant way, but disappear nevertheless. And so one thing I thought might be worth talking about before we even get into the actual soundtracks and such, when do you think it's like that makes sense, right? Like when is a score is just sort of like the appropriate way to go? When are like pulling tracks that may be relevant from that time or, you know, if it's like a a different time period, like pulling from that time period appropriate or blending the two sort of like, you know, here's some stuff to bring you in. Here's some stuff that, you know, just sort of makes the movie go type thing. What do you guys think about that? I think you bring up such an important uh, point here because I recently saw the movie Soul. Um, and it came out on Christmas Day. It was originally supposed to come out uh, last year with Disney Pixar. And the movie is, the movie soundtrack is divided into two different, like there's almost three people working on it. And one part of it, I guess Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did uh, one part of the, like, it's almost like the psychedelic part of the score. And then an American jazz artist named uh, John, sorry, what was his name? John Baptiste. Uh, He did, like, jazz songs for, like, the New York segments of it. So it was really this blending of kind of two different artists going in and out of it. So I think your point of, you know, what's a score versus what's a soundtrack, it's... Uh, almost something I use as a distinction between um, a compilation soundtrack and an original score. And those are really the only two distinctions I have. But I think that something can be a score and a soundtrack. And I think something can be just a soundtrack where it's just a compilation. And I like seeing these different variations of scores happening. Um, and one of the things I'm going to talk a little bit about when I uh, look at Jackie Brown is the fact that it is like a score mixed with a soundtrack mixed with dialogue. And so it actually has a third element where it's kind of like, well, it's actually got pieces of the moving in it. And it reminds me of those old records that used to get when I was a kid and it would often be like the Star Wars story or you would get like the Sesame Street stories on record. 
And it would be this, like, dialogue from the show or the movie that you were really into. So I think the blending of lines between scores, soundtracks, and what's labeled as that, so... Um, I like to blur that. I like gray zones. I don't like the binary, as you would refer to it, Jason. I like that weird gray zone where you're including different things. And, yeah, that's all I have to say about that right now. (laughs) So I I definitely agree with Anthony's assessment. And I think, you know, like I was doing a little bit of digging again, not like putting together my uh, capstone or thesis or anything like that. But, you know, one thing that occurred to me, and I I realized this sort of when I was consuming movies – in my like you know teenage early 20s is that like sometimes soundtracks are actually sort of <laughs> like misnomers because they'll throw you like you know you'll watch this movie there'll be all of these great songs that they sort of pull into it for the purposes of the film and then they release the soundtrack and it's and none of that none there none. oh oh my god it always drove me nuts you'd be like watching that scene you'd be like oh my god i can't wait to get the soundtrack and then it wouldn't be there So it occurred to me as I was doing some research that it's like sometimes the soundtrack is really just a tool to get folks either to the film or to buy the soundtrack, right? Like it's, it's sometimes there's not a clear relationship between the music in the film and what actually is considered the soundtrack or whatever. Or, you know, in another example that I'm going to talk about in a little more detail, the soundtrack is actually produced before the film. So like they're using the music to motivate the actors and actresses being in their moment and sort of like this, have this in your head as you're like thinking about how you're going to reprise this, you know, this dialogue in, in the script that you know, you're going through. So it's, it's really weird how many different ways and how many different uses there are for scores and soundtracks. And I'm glad that we're having this conversation because it's just, it's interesting how, very complex and how different it is and and actually even some genres of films tend to use soundtracks differently just because of you know like it's just it's weird so you know like when like using current popular music is appropriate versus just sort of like the more arranged sort of classical sort of uh, again kind of background but i mean it can be appreciated in its own right type music so when you raise this point to to talk about it i thought here we are this is kind of this is i think the jumping off point where we really start to get into the meat and potatoes of what we're thinking about the podcast well well yes this is a great opportunity for us three to get together and talk and have a good time and reference these things but this is this is kind of that question of why are we like what's the point what's the point of a soundtrack what's the point of a score and and of course we are coming at this from just our own three personal opinions but i really i dove into it i really thought long and hard about what my opinion is on on soundtrack and score and the first thing i came up with is what you came up with jason it is it was a tie to draw people in to to see the movie first and foremost you put something licensed in the trailer you have a reference to a song that people are familiar with that's popular for the time and that's going to drive people in to see it even if it's never referenced again in a soundtrack and like a cd or a vinyl version of it which is unbelievably frustrating but that's kind of the the point of it again it references back to that that idea of all all roads lead to money. All The answer to all of our questions will always be money. The other thing I came up with, or the other couple things I came up with, one was, I think it's the difference for me between feeling and emotion. And I'm, I'm going to try and explain that as best as I can. The score to me in movies has always been the emotional heart of a movie. I think I could watch a scene from a movie without the score 
and be completely unimpacted emotionally than how I am when the score is then introduced. To to speak to kind of Anthony's point in our last episode, we referenced Soul, and that was one of those movies that I was really looking forward to seeing. I still haven't seen it yet, but in the editing, I had to listen to one of the songs. I believe it was called Epiphany. And I listened to it and I realized this is going to wreck me when I watch it. Like I can already get a sense of the emotional impact of the scene just based on the one song that I listened to. And I just I knew immediately, like, I'm not going to be able to get through this without a box and a half of Kleenex. Like it's it's just how I am with with Pixar but I think it's purely driven by score. And that's what I mean by the score being the kind of the emotional side of, of a film, of a piece of, of a TV episode, of a, a part of a video game. Whereas I think the compilation soundtrack or utilizing licensed music in a soundtrack, it's trying to stimulate people's minds and get them thinking about what the movie is about and or that directors and producers and creators utilize soundtracks to try and invoke a feeling of what they're trying to get across. And the example I utilized for this is Almost Famous. Almost Famous, directed by Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe is basically doing his life story. He was a young kid who wrote for Rolling Stone, lied about his age and wrote for Rolling Stone and followed the biggest rock bands around of the era. And the best way to illustrate the time in which he's depicting in the movie is to bring in all of these great classic rock tunes at significant cost to the production. But it's to set the the stage for where we are. I think it's the music that really drives people to realize, okay, I'm listening to Tiny Dancer. I'm listening to The Who. I'm listening to Led Zeppelin. I'm in the 70s. I am in the rock era of the 70s. So I think that's where that, that differentiation and where the usage really comes into play, whether you're trying to invoke emotion, fade into the background, but still tug on the heartstrings, or if you're trying to be upfront with things and get people to realize exactly where they are or where the director or filmmaker or creator wants you to be. I don't know if that makes sense or if that that really fits with what you two were thinking about, but I'd love to hear your feedback. Yeah, no, I think I understand what you're talking about. And again, that concept of emotion versus feeling I would even bring it back to Pixar and be like, oh, again, let's use Inside Out versus Soul as a little bit of a comparison here. And Jason, did you have you had a chance to see Soul at all? Or No, not yet. I would really be interested to talk to you both about it, both from a soundtrack perspective, because uh, I think it's absolutely phenomenal what they did. Like, uh, I'm not trying to build it up too much. Um, but also the trope um, of black characters being not black uh, in a movie comes up. And so it would, particularly as we're talking about black exploitation films and the notion that black characters are so front and center and they're so empowered and oftentimes that can be, you know, uh, th- there's that argument that there were, uh, there was negative stereotypes attached to it. Um, I would argue that soul is a little bit of a different conversation where I, you know, for good or bad, there is that trope where the main character is black, but doesn't spend time being black in the movie. And so I don't know, I'd be really interested to have a conversation after you both see it, both again, from a soundtrack perspective, but from also a race perspective to be like, what's the story that they're telling here? And I think they made some really interesting choices, really good choices and other ones that I'm like, oh, I don't know if I would have done that. I think that sounds like a really interesting topic to get into. Yeah, yeah for, sure. for sure. Absolutely. 
so thank you both for for talking about that. I think the I think we we broached some really important ground uh, talking about the subject at hand, talking about black exploitation, the genre, really getting a little bit of sense of where we are in the era at the time when these movies are being released. And then I think that conversation that we've just had about um, when to use soundtracks, when to use scores really does fit into our next segment, which is where we start looking into the the movies that we've selected to talk about specifically. So let's get into our second segment here, uh, which is where we usually talk about the different selections that we've kind of highlighted in regards to the the topic at hand that we're talking about. So I think what we will do is we'll pass it over to Jason first. Uh, and Jason, uh, go ahead and talk about what exploitation films you've selected for the podcast today. So I don't think we could have had this conversation without talking about Shaft. I mean, you know, 1971, the beginning, more or less, of this whole black exploitation period, and a film that even if people haven't necessarily seen it, they're very much aware. Like, we were doing this sort of before we started the segment, but if you start to go into that, he's a bad mother, shut your mouth. I'm talking about Shaft. We can dig it. You know, I mean, like, people know that. They just know it inherently. And obviously, that is how the soundtrack opens up, which would get any... Like, that song is just the way that it's structured, the the bounce to it, it. It gets you hyped. You know, it's just such a fun song. What's interesting, though, is that almost immediately afterwards, it stops becoming a a soundtrack to me really it's more of a bunch of you know and isaac hayes does this thing where it's it's kind of it's funk but it's kind of jazz and it's kind of it's kind of soul all at the same time you know listening to it all you could see how it fits the scenes perfectly but at the same time and you know I, i put this down in my notes because i wanted to make sure i said it maybe it's an unpopular opinion but it's kind of instantly forgettable. The only other thing that I thought was especially notable from that soundtrack, like where it kind of stuck with me and it's, it's, is the very next song after the title track, Bumpy's Lament. And the only reason that I know, like I, I kind of smiled as I was playing the soundtrack is because I was like, wait a minute, being a DJ and, you know, have being influenced by a lot of DJs that go back and forth between sort of like the current song and the original sample, it struck me immediately as like, oh, this is explosive. But I'm like, it's not quite explosive. What's going on here? I did a little bit of digging and found out that another group covered it a little later on that same year, um, Soul Man and the Brothers. And it's that version that Dr. Dre built from for Explosive. But that wouldn't have happened were it not for Bumpy's Lament on the soundtrack. So, you know, it's it's just cool how there are threads between, you know, music at that time. And I wish I was informed enough to know what Isaac Hayes was like, what his inspiration was to build these songs, because I'm sure perhaps maybe if I was in the know enough, I could go back 30, 40 years and be like, oh, if you're knowledgeable enough, you know where this sort of came from. <laughs> But after that, after sort of that initial giddiness of sort of recognizing that track and then sort of zoning out and thinking about explosive in my head and like <laughs> everything that was in that song, I was like, okay, the rest of the soundtrack is pretty cool. But then this feels a lot more like a, a score to me than it does pure songs that anybody would remember after the fact. 
So that was kind of my take on the, you know, the soundtrack. Nothing against the the movie or nothing against the song. I mean, like the the music is good. It's just not all that memorable outside of the context of the film. So one thing I will say though about the soundtrack is it is readily apparent to a point that I I forget now whether it was Anthony or Don that you made about there are some points where when you're listening to the soundtrack, you can pretty much you can envision your head like, oh, okay, this is a superhero moment, right? Like this is sort of like where Shaft is like kicking somebody's ass and like taking names and all that stuff. And there are other moments in the the soundtrack where I'm I'm listening to him like, oh, okay, this is where he got some ass. Like this is, you know, like it's very clear to me, like, okay, without going back and rewatching the film, it's like I know what happened when this music came on. Like it it's the setup for this particular type of moment. The next film depending on who you ask, is or isn't a black exploitation film. And I guess I wanted to include this because I thought it was kind of important to sort of juxtapose to what some black film creators were trying to do at the time. Cooley High is a film that really doesn't touch on any of the stereotypes that you would commonly associate with the other black exploitation films of the era. But at least according to Complex magazine, it's black exploitation still. I mean, it came out in 1975, so it, you know, time-wise, it fits. And I would probably argue that I don't think it's black exploitation, but it probably isn't possible without the films that preceded it. So I think it's still important to talk about for this context. I really think this film and films like it were kind of like the precursors to things like, you know, School Days and the John Singleton series of films. Like, I think this kind of is more canon with that, where it's like they're trying to depict black experiences that are not exactly what would be represented in your your average black exploitation film. I mean, the, the main character in Cooley High is at the end, he, well, okay, I'm assuming I'm not spoiling anything for anybody at this point, but you know, he, he is said to have successfully gone to Hollywood and started uh, making films or whatnot, which was his dream in the film that sort of telling of like a black person's dreams and ambitions was not common then. And, you know, depending on, you know, is more common now, but still level of nuance that we tend not to get as much as we probably should. And that goes for, you know, any other person of color, it's like experience. It's still kind of novel when we see those type of films on the screen. But the soundtrack is what you would have expect. You know, the the film itself says in the beginning it's set in 1964, and the songs that are played throughout the film are exactly what you would expect to hear teenagers playing uh, as they're trying to do their thing. Right? I mean, it starts out with "Baby Love." You know, like there's lots of Motown songs peppered throughout the entire thing. All that to say that. It just is a very, very, like, if you like Motown, you love the song choices that they have on here. And another thing that I found was interesting, I do not have this on vinyl. I, you know, if you have this on vinyl, hey, call me, hit me up, because this is not something that's easy to find. I, like, actually, I had to buy this UCD because it was, like, the print was in 2000, and it just doesn't really exist commercially. And, you know, I don't, I'm assuming this was on vinyl at some point. But man, it's not an easy thing to find. And it's really, really just great music from start to finish.
I also find it what's interesting, like the track list on here for all 22 songs, it actually seems to move through the movie. Like the movie is structured to go through these songs in the order that they appear on the soundtrack, which is kind of fascinating to me because it's like, okay, whoever had this script could see the exact sequence of songs that they needed to pull in to match the moments. Which, when, Don, you were talking about sort of the feeling versus emotion thing, I felt my mind pushing back a little bit because I was like, well, yeah, except, man, when Cochise, the, like, the other, not exactly main character, but damn near close, passes away because of the situation in the film, they play It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday, and man, it's kind of hard to not at least... Feel something happening at the corner of your eyes when that song comes on because it's like, you know, you have the main character sort of sitting back and you you start to get into his mind about like why he's not there with the rest of the crowd. And, you know, you just it, it brings out some emotions that it's like, man, well, I guess I kind of get it because it's like the stuff he's about to say and do he needs to do with that character alone in that moment. And it's just anyways, I, I, I think you're mostly right about sort of the the feeling versus emotion things, but I do think that there are some notable exceptions sometimes, and I felt like this soundtrack was that. So I think that's probably all I have to say about that particular soundtrack. And the last uh, soundtrack I had on my list of uh, soundtracks that we were looking at this week was uh, Car Wash. And man, let me... I don't even know if I know how to classify this one because it's... It, there are some exploitation elements like uh shaft but they're also there's a whole lot more uh kind of like uh coolie high it was it was black exploitation to an extent it was what i just described before in terms of coolie high to an extent plus a whole bunch of other stuff i i think that may be the first film i could readily think about where you know there is a character who is non-hetero, you know, like in the black community, because obviously dealing with non-heterosexuality has been a thing that because of the community's ties to their faith and whatnot has been a struggle for many aspects of the, you know, of our community. But, you know, just seeing like you got the, the regular folks just sort of trying to live their life and like thinking about things beyond the car wash, you've got this preacher character in Richard Pryor that is over the top. But oddly enough, you can find that character in people nowadays, uh, <coughs> Creflo Dollar, you know, and other folks like that that like are on this whole prosperity preaching or whatever. This soundtrack is amazing on so many different levels because you've got this, uh, like I mentioned before, recorded before the film. So it's like they wanted this soundtrack to influence the film and everything about it. You've got this band that nobody had really heard of before the soundtrack in Rolls Royce that they were trying to promote and who had this, you know, this career really off of the strength of several of the songs on this uh, uh, soundtrack. And it won a Grammy, actually, in 1977. So there's that, too. So it's not all about the uh, acclaim or whatever, but hell, it won a Grammy. So, you know, mic drop. I was, you know, in my like late teens, early 20s or whatever in Mary J's My Life album. When that came out and I, that was the first time I heard I'm Going Down. And 
you know, before then, I thought Mary J. Blige was amazing. Like, I went to see a concert with her in the Chicago area off of that, like, her first album. And, you know, like, I mean, she was great. But that song and the way she sung it introduced me to, depending on who you talk to, there's, like, you know, the the fat Luther and, like, the skinny Luther and, like, the difference between the music they made. For Mary J. Blige, it's, like, the the happy Mary or, like, the really in pain Mary and, like, the difference between those songs. This was the introduction for me to that pain side of Mary that made her amazing. And when she sung that song, I was just, like, the range that it showed compared to her first album is what really made her the queen of hip-hop soul. And that would not have been possible were it not for this track that Rose Royce had done, what, like, 20 years before then. And it was also amazing. And then when I heard that original version, I was like, I have no idea who did it better, but I'm glad that both versions exist. Another rain against my window pane is slowly, slowly driving me insane. Boy, I'm going Sort of going against what I said about like Shaft, there is tons of replayability here because there's just so much to appreciate between like the disco s songs, the soul songs, the funk songs the sort of jazzy songs that are on here. It has so much of everything that like I love on a regular basis. Well, I'm super glad you included Car Wash because I'm not familiar with watching the movie, but the cult of Car Wash, and uh, which the point you brought up, uh, of featuring a well-known homosexual character is a really good nod to the fact that Blaxploitation for me Obviously, there was a, a capitalist, like, money-driven purpose towards it. But I think Car Wash uh, is indicative of how it really was looking at the outer parts of society. And, again, looking for that representation. So the thing for me about Car Wash is, you know, it not necessarily is exploitation, but it's written by well-noted homosexual and Batman and uh, Robin director Joel Schumacher. So, you know, things like that have a lot of power for me you know when we're talking about representation and i think car wash is such an interesting it, it, i think it really puts the cap the camp in um, black exploitation uh, or references a lot of the camp in black exploitation so i um, am really happy to see that included and i'm so glad that jason you have that soundtrack because it is one of those things that i've always looked at and every time i see it and be like crap i should get that I should get that. And I always have like kicked myself because I never do. So I think this episode specifically is going to make me want to go out and get it. It's it's really I think you you hit the the nail on the head there, Anthony. I think as we are seeing this genre kind of push to that boundary of like 75, 76, and we start to see the the main reasons why it was started kind of start to wash away. And the realization that this now needs to be kind of built into into the way that we are making movies moving forward. I think it's a great representation of those individuals on the fringe sides of what you typically saw in in media. And it started to really kick in the doors and break down the walls and, and start to just make it more regular and more well-known. So I was, I was really happy when I saw Car Wash. I really enjoyed it. And it's what we've been talking about in this entire episode. It's at that fringe end of the, of the board of the, the genre like lines, but it then kind of influences everything moving forward. And there are so many pieces of, of pop culture today that wouldn't be here without Shaft, without Cooley High, without Car Wash, without the things that Anthony and I are going to talk about uh, next. So I just, I really like the list, Jason, and I appreciate you bringing it. Anthony, I think we will go to you next and we will talk about uh, about what you've brought to the table. Yes. 
Um, I love coffee. The movie and soundtrack, not the drink. So, coffee is a feminist block exploitation movie that features Roy Ayo's jazz funk soundtrack. And while Shaft was the father of the black exploitation movie, I would argue that Coffee is the mother, the badass mother. I didn't actually discover coffee until about, I would say, early 2010s, 2010s. And for me, as a white person consuming black culture, I really have to acknowledge that there is a power dynamic in that, and that oftentimes the movies are not made for me. They're not made for my consumption, but I don't let that stop me from consuming them because I think there is enjoyment in cross-cultural consumption and again the concept of appropriation does come into that conversation but i really do feel like genuine love of a piece of work a piece of art if you will can transcend some of those barriers while still acknowledging the systemic racism that exists with producing them and i think coffee is a really good example of that because it comes out a couple years after shaft so we have this established protagonist of you know, almost a superhero uh, black man who is coming to the rescue and he's doing a lot of action, but there's also a lot of misogyny with his his power. And it really does take me back sometimes when I watch it, how often he can smack around women in those movies. It really becomes off-putting at certain times. And I think I can watch something and I can consume something without necessarily having to have a personal reaction to it. But I always found those a little off-putting because of that. But when I found coffee, I don't know why the female, strong female lead turned it around for me because there is some of the familiar tropes, again, coming back to that violence, especially women against women. Um, but I think what makes coffee a little bit more interesting, and again, time has been kinder to it in the sense that it really was a, the one of the first representations of a strong black woman. And coffee specifically is a nurse. And her whole narrative is that she's taking out revenge on the drug lords and crime lords in her community that have you know got her sister addicted and got the people in her community addicted to drugs and so there are a lot of superhero tropes in this movie that i think again upon re-watching it i was just like wow i'm such a marvel nerd but there is some serious origin stories like being great light linear um and there's also just some outrageously fantastic campy fight scenes for me at one point there's this scene where coffee goes to a party and she's kicking ass with a salad and she's got this great line where she's like, Meg, you didn't have any salad. And then just dumps a salad on her and then just starts beating the hell out of all these people at a party. So again, an example of that like underlying misogyny that's still there is that this is still, you know, a very feminist movie by its representation. But that there is that underlying, you know, brawling broads track that kind of made me laugh and kind of made me cringe a little. Before I forget, the one great part of that uh, scene um, where she's kicking ass with salad is that she's put razor blades in her hair. So at one point, somebody goes to grab her hair from behind and they get a fist full of razors. And just that scene alone, because when coffee turns around, she's just like, mm -hmm, I did that. And again, just that trick and that concept of doing that is very vigilante, very 70s, very independent cinema. 
And I think the music of Coffee is really done so well. As I said, Roy Ayers was the, the gentleman who did the soundtrack. And upon research, I realized that he was actually a beginner in the jazz funk area and kind of helped propel that forward. And I think Coffee soundtrack really c- contains a lot of that jazz funk blurring. Um, and the opening track of Coffee, uh, which has the stellar lyric, Coffee is the color of your skin, which is so powerful. Again, again, when we talk about representation for me, I just think about, you know, the fact that a dark-skinned black woman was the center of this film franchise is really powerful unto itself. And naming that within the lyrics of the song, I think is such a powerful move- moment, but it's also just, just so damn funky. Um, and it's actually sung by Dee Dee Bridgewater, who, again... I had no idea that I'm like, oh, I think I've heard of her or I've heard of her show on NPR Jazz Set, but I had no idea it was her. So I was really happy to kind of find these little nuggets of information to be like, wow, there's so many uh, stories of interconnecting within these stories. And I think Ayers really kind of brought those all together. And as we're talking about blending genres and, you know, looking at that gray zone and not necessarily the binary, uh, I think that coffee is a lot like that i think there's there's a lot of blending of different things uh including black exploitation but also this superhero story that uh with a woman in front of it was not something i'd seen before and i think a lot of people tend to remember her next movie after this cut pam Greer's next movie after this foxy brown a little bit more it's tend to be the more popular one but i think coffee is just as good if not better For me, coffee just has a certain majesty to it, and it has, like, a campy, but there's also that strongness. Um, And if you, when you do watch it, you'll see that coffee is such a brilliant character. I think that's what I really look at it as, is that just as a character, she's just so badass. I don't know, have either of you guys seen coffee before? Yeah, although I tend to get them confused. I I mean, between Coffee and, like, Sheba Baby and Foxy Brown, like, the stories all kind of, because they're all so basically similar, tend to run together a lot. I, I The one thing that was making me smile is I was doing a little bit of, like, the research for the stuff I was talking about. Complex had this list of uh, black exploitation films, and apparently the movie poster for Coffee has, like, the byline, she's the godmother of them all. So I just, when you were talking about that, I just was like, yeah, she, I mean, she's kind of being set apart here as sort of like, if Isaac Hayes is the godfather of all these, uh, of the genre then she is right there with him in terms of uh, being the godmother of it all. I will only push back because I feel like uh, as a black person, I almost have to. She would not be considered dark skinned by any uh, any black person's metric. I would say maybe a brown or light skin at best. But anyway, establishing that I just, well, Gosh, uh, <laughs> I don't know what I can say without getting myself in trouble, because after all, my wife will eventually listen to this. But man, <laughs> uh, she is like, even to this day, she, Pam Greer is just fine. Like, she just sort of defies age. And back then, I mean, yes, there's the story and the, all the music and all that stuff. But there was just sort of like a <sighs> when she was on the screen. And that really hasn't gone anywhere. So all that to say, and I feel what you're talking about as far as the misogyny of it all, because my gosh, like the readiness of folks in the movie to smack women around, it was like, it was really jarring because it's like, 
yeah that that can't do that on television now but you know i mean obviously that was i guess that was the era and if you uh keep that in mind perhaps it's like okay well i'm not gonna dwell on that too much but it is still very jarring the only other thing i want to say uh with respect to this is man when you talk about roy Ayers, oh i heart him so much uh like there are certain artists since I've been collecting vinyl, I've tried to go out of my way to collect. And man, he's one of them because, yeah, you know, you find him in the jazz section of record shops or whatever, typically. But when you listen to like his stuff, like I, I got both uh, Virgin Ubiquity kind of recently. And man, it's like it's yeah, it's jazz, but it just it has this groove that is just so unlike most jazz albums typically speaking like i really can't think of anything else i have that is quite like that because it's it's not really soul like it's just got this funky grooviness and then like his vocals on things tend to if you're really listening to what he's saying on a lot of his songs there is this sort of empowerment piece to it too and a lot of the songs do tend to be uplifting and it's like all that combined in just a sound is just so it's so very cool so I don't have that soundtrack, like, and knowing that he's responsible for it now, that definitely puts in my radar, because I just love, love, love him and everything I've ever heard from him up to this point. So for me, I didn't get a chance to see Coffee until much later. I, I kind of, similar to you, Anthony, I came to Pam Greer a, a lot later um, with uh, Jackie Brown and then kind of going retrospectively back to, to the history. So I, I don't think there's anything else I can add to the amazing salad or razor blades in the hair comments or, or the soundtrack. Uh, but I think the Coffee soundtrack is is really fantastic to to what we're we're putting in here i i hope we are highlighting something new for people who are listening in and that it then ups consumption of that soundtrack and that score because i think that's that's just some great music right there in regards to the conversation about the misogyny of it all i mean definitely as we kind of talked about with the genre and the history that we put up at the, in the first segment there's lots of things that this genre did at the time that was really positive but obviously very negative for for some individuals in in any of the communities that were being represented um i think we have to look at black exploitation films of the of the era when they were most popular with a in a lens that we are looking back to a time and not reflective to putting it against what we're of or about today because obviously smacking around women is not exactly what we want to be promoting in today's uh, movies or tv shows or whatever we consume but i think we can consume it with that in mind and, and hopefully our, our listeners are doing it the same way that's a really good point on and something that i always come back to because as a queer homosexual, I have a love of a lot of really campy, at times problematic movies. And uh, I think one of the things for me about consuming those things is the context in which you're consuming them. And absolutely, I think, you know, the violence against women is never a, a funny subject. But the way in which it's framed, it was specifically within coffee, I, I'm not making excuses for like violence in the movies against women. But again, when we're looking at coffee, I think by centering the female in that violence, or that is something that had never been done before. That had never really been, you know, it had been hinted at and you have these like strong independent characters kind of scattered throughout, but you never have somebody who was as violent and as very 
very take charge as coffee was. Um, and I think Pam Greer brought so much to that. And interestingly enough, uh, it, I actually like tended to follow Pam Greer's career a little bit more because she pops up in quite a lot of horror things. Um, and uh, after Jackie Brown, one of her most notable roles after this was in Jawbreaker, which is a pretty dark teen movie, um, again with an amazing soundtrack. But to recenter it around Pam Greer, uh, the other movie I chose to look at uh, in our discussion is Jackie Brown. I really love Jackie Brown, not as a black exploitation movie, because it's not a black exploitation movie at all. And Tarantino himself has already said that. And obviously, there's a number of reasons why, but I think it was so heavily influenced by black exploitation. Um, and again, when I was doing a little bit more research, I realized it was so influenced by some of those that Quentin actually just took pieces of the coffee soundtrack. At last I count, there's at least five original pieces from Coffee that are in Jackie Brown. So not only is Roy Ayers the soundtrack producer for Coffee, he unintentionally is an uncredited, actually, as what I was also noted. Quentin Tarantino and James Newton Howard, who did the score for Jackie Brown, get the main uh, credits on these soundtracks. So um, I think Jackie Brown is a good example of how there is a little bit of acknowledgement and homage to those black exploitation films, but it really is heavily based in a lot of whiteness. Um, and I think there's not a lot of good things that can be taken from that, but I think what Quentin Tarantino tried to do with Jackie Brown is really highlight how important Pam Grin and the centering of that black female character was in that movie. Um, and so the opening track for me and there's this scene where Jackie Brown's kind of in an airport and she's on a moving sidetrack and it's got Bobby Womax across 110th Street. And it's just this fantastic tracking shot. Uh, and it really sets up the whole concept of where uh, Jackie Brown as a character is at that point in the movie, which is, I think, what one of the soundtracks, one of the things soundtracks can lend itself to is that it really sets the stage for what's going on. And I think that's what the soundtrack does really well, is that it's a compilation created by Quentin Tarantino himself. And that's really where I love Quentin Tarantino the best. I'm not a huge fan of his movies. I think, for me, they can be somewhat problematic. There's some really good movies he's done. Like, I really enjoy Kill Bills, and I really enjoy Death Proof. But for me, I actually tend to like his soundtracks more than his movies. And Jackie Brown is a, a random time when both I like the movie and I like the soundtrack lined up. Um, so it is one of those ones that I can say I really enjoy both. And the Jackie Brown soundtrack for me really does create an atmosphere of the film. And it kind of, listening to it on its own, I think recreates the experience of the movie so well. Uh, and you know, Jason, what you were talking about when you pair up with what's going on screen with that music, I think Jackie Brown's soundtrack does that very well by including a lot of lines of dialogue. Uh, and it has this like peppered throughout where all of a sudden you'll just be listening to a song and then it'll just have a quick splice of dialogue from the movie. And as a big fan of soundtracks, I really loved that because it, it, to me it introduces something different that the soundtrack is not necessarily just, you know, boom, here's the music in the movie. And this is what I think Quentin Tarantino does really well with his soundtracks, is he knows how to choose music. 
and he knows how to choose music that fits scene. So while his homage to black exploitation films, I think is such a interesting character study, and that's really what it is. Is like all these characters going through this heist, and you know who's double crossing who, and what's happening. Where's the money? Where's the drugs? It's all very you know serious in its nature and there's not a lot of camp to it and that's not necessarily a bad thing but to me i think that's one of the things that uh, is missing from it that doesn't necessarily lend it to the black exploitation part of it that's why i chose jackie brown you hit the nail on the head with the tarantino thing his movies are very problematic and of course in in today he's been referenced tons for his use of violence and his use of racial slurs and being a white director i mean it's it's very problematic his most famous work definitely does have some some bite to it on either side but that's why i i kind of i i'm along the same lines as you i think jackie brown is his best it's under the radar and while he does he does pay homage to a lot of the things that came before it he does take it and, and run with it a little bit but his the way he pairs music into his films to create that feeling and to also pair it with emotion i mean as you were talking about jason with um with some of the soundtracks the compilation soundtracks prior yes there are definitely exceptions to that that kind of idea that i had brought up that i think soundtracks set place and set mood as opposed to set emotions and i think those tarantino is one of those who really puts thought into the the music he's putting into his his movies specific to what he is trying to to put out there I'm really glad that I'm doing this with the both of you because I guess it's made me go back and listen to things uh, or seek out things that I haven't paid attention to in such a long time. And I I think this is going to be one of those opportunities where I'm like, I'm going to seek that out just because the one thing that I appreciate the more that, you know, I sort of build up my like vinyl collection or whatever is like, there are so many gems, like those full circle moments can be found in stuff like this. And I appreciate that a lot more now. So, yeah, uh, I will definitely be seeking out Jackie Brown's soundtrack and coffee for the the Ayers connection. But so I don't necessarily have a whole lot to say about the the music. But knowing that like some of those people that you mentioned are involved with it, it makes it so much more exciting for me because I love those artists. And it's like I, anything that can sort of build that up. And it's like then I'll probably listen to it and it's like oh this song pulled from that, or this is connected to that. This was a sample that Dilla used, or, you know, something crazy like that. All that'll sort of come rushing to me, and it's like, yeah, this is awesome. So for my selections, obviously I was taking into consideration our podcast and what we do here and the music side of things. And I thought some of the things that really epitomized black exploitation movies for me in my research and in the viewings that I had done prior to us even thinking about this podcast was looking at the artists who had serious cred coming into them scoring these soundtracks or putting together the soundtracks and giving the genre legitimacy. And I think that's a, a real significant moment here early on into the genre's existence it's it's getting these really amazing musical artists and bringing them in and providing a legitimacy as i just mentioned to the genre and to the movie itself even despite the criticism or the the backlash that that everybody had been experiencing because of the the stereotypes or what were perceived stereotypes so i think music and and bringing in those those artists really does provide 
more solidarity to the subject matter, more seriousness to the subject matter, and exposes it to a greater audience. So the two items that I've picked do kind of fall in that line. Uh, the first one I'm going to talk about is Trouble Man. Trouble Man's a 1972 movie, so fairly early on in the uh, the exploitation kind of heyday. But it is scored by a post-what's-going-on Marvin Gaye. And we are talking about Marvin Gaye at his height. I mean, what's going on? so politically charged nothing it's something that he's he's never done before outside of of what was what was happening at Hitsville USA i mean he was pumping out hit after hit after hit so he decided to utilize that power and and release what's going on a serious look at what's happening to the black community and what's happening in vietnam and and what's just happening in general and he took that power and put it into the trouble man soundtrack and really provided a, a just a fantastic soundtrack for a pretty fun movie i wouldn't say it's it's groundbreaking in the way that i think shaft is or or superfly but I do think that Trouble Man does fit that bill to a T to look at the genre. And conveniently enough, the the lead actor, the character is Mr. T in this. And I think one of the best songs off the album, aside from the Trouble Man theme, is T Plays It Cool. It kind of does suit um, exactly what the movie is. Mr. T even in, is referenced in the movie as his main superpower is his coolness. And once you get beyond that, that's when you really got to worry because he is just a cool character no matter what's happening. He is a pool shark. He is a private detective. He gets um, brought in by the cops and he he lashes out against the cops and says, what are you going to do? I'm going to call your bluff. And he he brings in the biggest mobster, um, Big, and he brings them to meet up with the guys that are setting him up. And he's just cool as a cucumber. He is so slick and so cool. And I think T plays it cool. Uh, Marvin Gaye really understands how to portray that in the song and it obviously fits all the the main points of black exploitation score i think it, it really is slick and smooth and just do think um gay really nailed it there Uh, obviously, the main track from Trouble Man is fantastic, too. And to reference kind of what, Anthony, what you have mentioned, you being such a Marvel nerd, it's been revisited through um, Captain America Winter Soldier. When Captain America is first meeting Falcon for the first time, he's doing the the running on your left and they do the meetup and they kind of chat. And Falcon mentions the Trouble Man soundtrack and says, this is how you catch up. Here's the soundtrack for you to listen to, to catch up on some of the things, some of the best things that you missed. And it plays later on when Captain America's in the hospital at the end of the movie, he's listening to Trouble Man. And I think what Trouble Man was trying to do, it was trying to do a, a little bit of a spin, that private detective, almost a spy thriller with this conflict between uh, Mr. T and the police and uh, these gangsters. And he was being set up and being framed similar to the way that Captain America was in in Winter Soldier. And, and it's interesting to see like that Marvel movie kind of um, takes some homage to Trouble Man. But what Gay is able to do in that lead song, that main track, is unbelievable. He he recorded it, I think, five different times. And on the actual soundtrack, there's a couple versions of it. But he just kept on recording and re-recording his vocals where he would do one in a tenor and he would do one falsetto and he would kind of blend the two or he would 
he would layer upon layer upon layer his vocals on top of one another and again similar to what T plays a cool does it sets up that character extremely well and does what I think I mentioned early on in regards to um, licensed music or music coming from a specific artist setting up the feeling of a movie it's kind of displaying it almost like a play like here is our scene here is the music that's going to be accompanying and this and from the song you get an immediate sense of what T is all about is such a powerhouse when it comes to the musical side of things in this era that lending his voice and his production he produced the soundtrack as well immediately following what's going on i think really demonstrates just how powerful the genre could be at the time and and just what could be done with it so i think trouble man is a great example of a score and a soundtrack that really do work for for this time the only thing I'll say about the Marvin Gaye is, and I, I was going through my uh, music collection as I was, uh, you were talking, because I was like, gosh, when did Make Me Wanna Holla and like, what's going on? Like, when did that actually come out? And I guess that, you know, that was more or less the same time as this film. So it just made me realize that, you know, this was Marvin Gaye at that time, like that socially conscious voice or whatever. This was like a complete man. Like, this wasn't him sort of assuming a role. That's that's what he did. That's where he was at musically at that point in time. So it just, it, I guess it emphasized for me that they're like, wow, that's something that um I will also need to seek out because I don't know of any Marvin Gaye music specifically from that film, uh, you know, beyond sort of what you, I, I guess I just want to connect the dots because it's like, wow, that that's really, that's really cool. Anthony, any thoughts? The only thing I'm going to say is I'm really excited to check out the soundtrack to Trouble Man because uh, I'm familiar with Marvin Gaye, but not super familiar. And I think I'm really excited to see where that goes. Of course. The second piece that I wanted to to talk about was Three the Hard Way. It comes a little bit later in the, the heyday of exploitation. It comes in 1974 and is a vessel... Uh, for very different actors to get involved in the in the black exploitation movement, we have Jim Brown considered to be one of the greatest NFL players known to man. He became a huge star in this era, and uh, Three the Hard Way is really a, a vehicle for him. So aside from from Jim Brown, we've got Fred Williamson, who's another staple of the black exploitation genre, and and Jim Kelly comes in, and we have three lead actors who are doing. Kind of what gets mirrored in TV shows of that era, like Charlie's Angels and movies and TV shows to this day, you have kind of your archetype or your archetypal um, characters where you have Jim Brown playing uh, Jimmy, who is the leader of the of the group. You have Fred, who is your your ladies man, who takes phone calls while he's sleeping with women and really gets it going. And then you have Jim playing uh, Mr. Keys, who is the martial artist. And of course, martial arts at this time was huge when it comes to black exploitation and film in general. I think there's huge influences from from kung fu movies, uh, great Chinese and Japanese Korean influence. We have these archetypes, and they all play off each other extremely well. And the music in this it again harkens to this idea that we need to bring in legitimacy through. All all of the, the mediums that we could. I think Three the Hard Way really did that with their actors. I think bringing in Jim Brown and bringing in Fred Williamson and Jim Kelly was was really smart. And they also did that with the, the soundtrack and score. 
Now, prior to Through the Hardway being released, Curtis Mayfield had split from the impressions and he went on to do his own thing. And he actually did the the score and soundtrack for Superfly, which of course is a, a huge known entity when it comes to black exploitation. But the impressions, his group, they stuck together and they did the soundtrack and the the main themes and all the songs for Through the Hardway. So there's even this scene where they go into the studio, you see the four members of the impressions doing the song, that's what love will do. And they've even implemented the artists into the movie because they understand that there's this great song that we really need to highlight. Why not just throw them right into the movie and show them actually doing it? I think it's a, a really interesting way to get that song across. So I think what what the producers were trying to do with including that that segment of the movie to include the impressions is to just highlight exactly what, how important the music is for, for this genre, for this movie. And of course, the impressions did such a fantastic job. I mean, that's what Love Will Do is a fantastic track. They did um, the three the hard way um, the theme and everything else that they did within the within the movie I think is it's really outstanding when we when we are looking at music of the era music of the genre and again this idea that production is utilizing music to try and establish a feeling and you you really get a sense of what the impressions are going for almost like um, they created um, That's What Love Will Do for Jim Brown's character because obviously in the movie he is trying to seek out the individuals who killed his friend and kidnapped his girl. And it turns out to be Nazis, which is unbelievable, who are who have this serum that only affects uh, the black population that they're going to pump into Detroit, Chicago, and I believe Los Angeles's water supply, which is amazing. It's a, such a crazy plot, but those are the two um, two movies that I selected. Obviously, we could go on forever and ever about all the things that we did miss. I mean, we didn't talk about Superfly. There's tons more uh, in the later years of the the black exploitation movement that that we absolutely avoided. I mean, if you just if you click on the list of uh, well known black exploitation movies. I mean, you could just go into a, a an internet wormhole trying to find all the the great soundtracks and scores. When you brought up like a uh, Superfly and like Curtis Mayfield and such for that, I, I I think what was really important for me was when you were talking about the impressions being in the film doing their song at that moment. What stood out for me was we're speaking about music in the film as sort of like a way to pump up the film, but the converse also has to be true and i guess what you described to me just made me realize that like you know music videos weren't really a thing for like another 10 to 15 years so this was like a pretty pure way to sort of pump up the group and their music at the same time as promoting the film and sort of making you know tying that all together so you know it like that quote you said about it all comes back to the the money or whatever for Three the hard way to take a good sort of four to five minutes to make sure that you just you are looking at the impressions singing the main track there or singing that's what love will do in the studio and it's just going back and forth to them i mean these are just these random four artists who are suddenly in this movie singing the track and it's exactly the way that you said it jason it's it's not only the songs bumping up the movies but the movies are bumping up the the soundtracks because 
both can promote one another. Both will excite and entice one another. So yes, everything comes back to money. But also, I think there's also an understanding that the music was truly good. Uh, Three the Hard Way has reminded me that Keenan Ivory Wayans directed a parody movie called I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. Mm-hmm. And I did not realize it was a parody of Three the Hard Way. Yeah, Jim Brown's in it too. Yeah, exactly. Star of like, Three the Hard Way is in so, there. Totally. So I am really excited to check out I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. And uh, connecting this to all sorts of other types of pop culture, I was I was struck as I was uh, looking at the album cover for Three the Hard Way. If, damned if that doesn't look like the opening to Charlie's Angels, to your point earlier. Like, that, the, the, sure. their poses, their position the position in the, like, in the yep. picture, very much that. So I'm not sure which came first. But then also, the whole Three the Hard Way, that whole style or whatever, very much influenced, I think, uh, Camp Low, which, you know, um, for those that uh, hip-hop heads or whatever, you know, like, their their first album, their debut, it's just all connected. Like, there's there's a whole lot of style elements that just sort of keep coming back and bubbling up to the surface again, so. Everything's connected. Or actually, and I hope I didn't just screw that up with Uptown Saturday Night. But in any event, you know, those connections are there. So I may have just done that, because now that I'm thinking about the, the the album cover for Camp Low, I think that was uh, connected to Uptown Saturday Night. But in any event, all these things just, like, they keep coming up over and over again, and mm-hmm. I, I think that is also pretty cool. Well, I thank you both for providing uh, your your black exploitation movies and and takes on the soundtracks and scores. I think that will do it for us today. I think we've put together quite a great list about black exploitation, about the history, about uh, the different uh, movies and TV shows, the things that came out from that era, the things that are still being influenced today by black exploitation. And I hope that we've given you some some food for thought and some takeaways for for you to consume moving forward. We obviously want you to take a look at the movies that are available. Uh, definitely let us know what you think about what you've uh, what you've heard or what you've seen what you're listening to and if there's anything that we missed we want to hear from you go ahead and reach out to us via our twitter account at even the score pod or you can reach out via gmail at uh, even the score podcast at gmail.com we want to hear from you and we really want to talk about this this topic moving forward i want to thank anthony and jason again for joining me once again thank you again to you both Ooh, thank you thank you don for having us this is this i'm really excited about this conversation And again, thank you to the listeners. Go ahead and find us on your podcast app of choice if you haven't already. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Now we are up there as well. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at EvenTheScorePod. Definitely rate and review us. Give us five stars if you really enjoyed this conversation, which I'm sure that you did. And share our uh, podcast with uh, other listeners. We really want to hear uh, from you. We want other people to hear from us. And we want to just continue to grow our, our listener base. So definitely go ahead and uh and share this with as many people as you can we'd really appreciate that but for uh for anthony and jason and myself we just want to thank you for listening to the even the score podcast have yourself a great one